Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the gift of your kingdom and for the servants that you send into the harvest field. We thank you for Pastor Wood and his family. We pray that you would bless them as they continue to prepare for the work that you have provided for them in Indonesia. We ask you to bless them as they look to sell a house, as they learn languages, as they prepare their children and each other to go. But most of all, Lord, we pray that you would continue to wrap them in your word that your spirit would give them strength and courage in these days and that you would let him know that you are still speaking to him as well. Words of forgiveness, words of strength, words of promise that you will be the, the strength in the words that he shares and that your church will continue to exist because of the promise of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we ask you now as we gather around your word in John 1 that you would bless us that the Spirit would lead us into all truth, that we might see our Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray. Okay, so John 1. We are in, the obviously, the prologue of John still. We've moved through John 1, 1 to 5 is this really um, strong text that tells us about the eternal nature of the Word. And remember, the Word is John's term for Jesus in the prologue. Yeah? Remember that? Sound familiar so far? Okay, and we've moved, and then he, and then John the Baptist came in verses six through eight, and then in nine we talked more about Jesus and how his own people rejected him. Well, now we're at one fourteen, which is which is one of the most important passages in the Bible. So, um, any questions on anything we've done beforehand or otherwise that you'd want to ask before we start? Okay, let's read John one fourteen. Okay, thank you very much. So, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is a mouthful. So, number one, why is this one of the most amazing statements in history? Yeah, what does that mean? The Word became flesh. God took on human flesh. Okay, remember, one of the great quotes of, of St. Augustine is a church father, right? You guys ever heard of Augustine? If you're cool, we call him Augustine sometimes. You ever heard of him? You ever heard of him? Augustine. He's, he's the guy that kind of shaped Luther's theology from a historical point of view, okay? So Augustine is a church father. He lived in really the 4th century, so the late 300s into the 400s and Augustine was was very much into philosophy and things like that and he said he's read all the Greek philosophical ideas and he finds lots of ideas of a divine word a divine idea of the divine word being eternal he finds it all over secular Greek philosophy not just Christians but 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 non-Christian philosophers will say this and they'll talk about the word even the word of God being eternal and having all these great things he said but in no text in no text or no philosopher do I read that this word takes on flesh. That this is just beyond comprehension. That, that 
a, a divine being would actually willingly take on human flesh. So this is really one of those incredible things about Christianity is that our God has flesh just like we have flesh. Now, you might think to yourself, yeah, well, you know, Greek gods had flesh stuff and stuff like that too. But the difference is in other religions, other philosophies in which gods have flesh, they not only have flesh, they also have the sinful characteristics of humans. What's unique about this is that when, when God take, is man, does he stop being God? So what part of Jesus is God? And how divine is he? Totally divine, right? And he's also totally man. He's not kind of human. He's not pretending to be a human. He's actually fully man. So this is the the amazing thing of this passage is that now we have God in the flesh without reducing his divinity and without deceiving us in his humanity. He is truly man. Right? He's not pretending to be human. He's actually human. And he's not pretending to be God. He's actually God. Right? Questions so far? Thoughts? All right. We're going to keep going. Uh, This is kind of... Yeah. So... But I just want to re- but highlight this to you because I'm, I'm still on my, my lifelong mission to convince everybody that we should be saying the Athanasian Creed every Sunday. Um, but if you think through the Athanasian Creed in your head, go ahead, I'll let you just run through it by memory in your head. <laughs> yeah, you get to the part where the second half where it talks about Jesus and it says, now, now here's how this happens. This doesn't happen by, by the divinity coming into humanity. That's not the movement that happens here. What actually happens is that divinity assumes humanity into the Godhead. Doesn't that clarify it? Not at all, right? But it's so important because it's not that God is is somehow now moving down into humanity. What's actually happening is in this action then, Jesus is taking our human nature into the divine Godhead. Which means that in this movement, now this is the part that really matters. Jesus is actually sanctifying human flesh. What is that? What does sanctifying mean? Making holy. So what this means is in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, when God became flesh in Jesus Christ, he is saying that your human flesh is not a bad thing. Your flesh is not the problem. Right? A lot of people think that that 
being material, being human, being fleshly is the problem. And we're trying to escape this so we become spiritual like God. Right? That's what, Dr. Bonick? Gnosticism. That's Gnosticism. Okay? We're not Gnostics. Okay? Gnosticism. Gnosticism says spirit good... Everything that isn't spirit is bad. So what we're trying to do is get rid of the, the non-spiritual stuff so we can all become spiritual. Right? So you'll have people say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And the idea is, see, there's this other realm out there in which we're, that's where we're going get, to get someday we'll get rid of the trappings of our flesh and we'll just end up in the spirit world in which everything is wonderful. Well, the incarnation says, no. The incarnation says that when God said, let us make man in our image, in the image of God, he made the male and female, he made them, that he didn't mess up. That that was good. And it's still good. Right? Yes, and the problem is Paul. You know, John is a little better than Paul. You realize, that, right? <laughs> is that in Paul's writing, the flesh is synonymous with sin. This is so frustrating. We've been saying we've been saying our confession. We say, "Well, it's not my by, by nature. I am sinful and clean." In today's confession, it says we were conceived in sin, right? But what this is actually helping us understand is that while our flesh is entirely sinful, it's not our human nature. Human nature is not the same thing as sin. Okay? Human nature is not the same thing as sin. Does that make any sense? This is all really weird, isn't it? And we were created perfect and, and sin came with what do you what were you created with in that equation? A human nature. Right? Was that sinful? No. What's happened to it, Roger? Sin came and totally did what to our human nature? Corrupted it. Right? So we are now born in such a way that our good human nature that God gave to us has become totally corrupted by original sin and it's my parents' fault. Right? They're not here. They can't defend themselves. So what happens is but we want to set, we want to continue in our minds to remember that it's not the same thing because, now this is the important thing, because Jesus has a human nature but does not have sin. And one day, you will have a human nature but will not have sin. And what do you call that when we talk about the time when you'll have a human nature but won't have sin? What is that called? 
That's called heaven. And at that moment, you will always and only do the will of God. So here's my humble suggestion. Start now. Right? Give it a go. You've been forgiven of all your sins. I was there. I heard it. So today, don't sin. Just go home and don't sin. Right? You and I both agree that if we could live without sinning, that'd be called bliss. Heaven. And not only for you, but everybody that you encounter today would be like, hey, this is great. So do it. Don't sin today. Just go home and make it your goal to not sin. Say, I'm going to do exactly what God wants for me today. That's my goal. For this day, is to only and always do what God wants. Not what I want. Yeah? And if you fail, what do you do? You come back to the one who has human nature without sin and you say, because of this, please forgive me and teach me by the power of the Holy Spirit how to live my life according to your will. Yeah? Every day. Yahweh. That's how we do it. Every day. Dying and rising. Right? So, have we got it? When Jesus took on human, when God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, he sanctified all human flesh. Which means your neighbor is somebody that you see as created at, in the image of God. Because Christ has redeemed that human flesh by taking on human flesh himself. Okay? So that's how we treat them. Right? We love them. Because God loves them. Questions so far? Thoughts? Okay. There's so much more. I mean, we're just just scratching the surface. Okay, number two. Who is Jesus? The Word. He's the Word made flesh. Okay? So now this whole idea of Word flesh, taking on flesh, is what's called the Incarnation. Okay? The incarnation. That's the fancy churchy word for God taking on flesh in the person of Jesus. When did that happen? When the Holy Spirit visited Mary and said... They will be with child. Okay? And as we confess, the conception happened through the ear of Mary. So what power is it that caused this God taking on flesh to happen? 
It's the power of the word of God. And so at the moment of the conception, and we say this in the creed, conceived by the Holy Spirit, what's the next step? Born of the Virgin Mary. So this is what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate at Christmas the incarnation of our Lord, which took place on what date? When was the date that, that the angel spoke to Mary? March 25th. Okay? Nine months before Christmas, <laughs> the church celebrates the Feast of the Annunciation. Right? So if you... If you Pretty soon, we're getting there. In a couple of months, we will celebrate the Feast of the Annunciation. And that's how the church celebrates this reality. Okay? But we see it at Christmas. Now, we're in the season of Epiphany. And what is the season of Epiphany about? What's that? The whole world now sees who God is in the flesh of Jesus. So the whole point of Epiphany is for the church to say, let me show you who my God is. He's, my God is there. Some crazy people go all the way to Indonesia to show the world, my God is there. Okay? This is Epiphany. When God says, you want to see who I am? This is who I am. Look at Jesus. That's your God. That's your Savior. Susan. Okay. So, obviously, it was important that Jesus became flesh and was the Yep. But then you don't hear anything about those early years until he starts his ministry. We prefer. Why didn't. Because you don't come as a teenager. I know, but I'm just saying, why, why is it when you don't Have you ever met a teenager? Could you imagine that ministry? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the great mysteries of Christianity is that we have, I know it's a, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but we don't know anything. Right? We don't know anything from the birth until his public ministry, which is when he's 30 years old. When he's 12. When he, everybody brings that up. Good for you. You know one thing. That's exactly... <laughs> see, the point that we know one thing just reinforces the whole argument. Yeah, we got that one episode of the temple. Exactly. That's what we know. Okay? For 30 years, that's what we know. We know they went to Egypt. We know they came back. We know in the temple, 12 years old. That's it. Okay? We don't know a whole lot. There's little stories here and there, and there's a bunch of legends because people can't deal with the fact that we don't know anything. Yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't for that. He was just going to the year to sacrifice. And... No, but I'm just saying. Yeah. They'd be up teaching and they were... Yeah, up teaching and they were like, wow, it's impressive. But see, we don't know much. What was he doing? Yeah. <laughs> what was he doing? 
He was living as what? A human, just like you. He was obeying his parents, and he was learning how to be what? A carpenter. He was learning how to be a carpenter from his father. He was being obedient to his parents and learning how to be a carpenter. And getting along well, not so well. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> I am a parent of two wonderful children, but not perfect. Yeah, I mean, and that's, and that's the fun contemplation we get to enjoy of what was it like for Mary? What was it like for Joseph? What was it like for his brothers and sisters? What did they tell his brothers and sisters? What did they tell their friends? And, you know, what did they tell each other? What did Joseph and Mary talk about at night, right? I mean, you know, do you pray for Jesus? As, as a parent, you're like, you know, God, take care of, well... I don't know. What do you do with that? So, so yeah, we don't know. It's that, that's kind of the fun speculation we have. But we do know, and I want to be clear on this, Jesus was fully God all the time. He, didn't, he didn't, wasn't all God-like in the beginning and then nothing until when he was 30 at the baptism he became God or something like that. No, no. He was fully divine when he was seven years old. Right? He was fully divine when he was 11 years old. He was fully divine when he was 18 years old. See, that's the hardest thing for me to picture. Here's a young man going through puberty, going through all the temptations of teenage years, whether it be selfishness or angst or, you know, whatever teenage boys face. He never sinned. He never sinned. That's amazing. Now, one thing I do want to talk about real briefly, we don't have that much time, is um, I don't want you to have in your brains, though, Superman Jesus. He wasn't a superhero. Just because he didn't sin doesn't mean he was the best at everything he did. People think that because Jesus didn't sin that he was a star quarterback on his football team. He's like, well, every pass would be complete. He would never be tackled. And I'm like, is it a sin? Is it a sin for you to make a mistake when you're playing a sport? Is it a sin for you to cut a board the wrong length if you're a carpenter? Packer fans think so. Yeah, that's (laughs) Well, you guys have had a lot of sin lately. (laughs) Abundance of sin up there in Packer land. I mean, think it through for a second. Jesus did nothing to attract us to himself, according to the prophet. There was nothing about him that made people go, there's something about you. Nothing. The incident at 12 years old, when Joseph and Mary were looking for yeah. For him. What is the purpose of that conversation for us? What should we take away from that? The conversation in, in Luke when, when he's at the temple in tw- when he's 12 years old is, is for them to understand 
that he is about his father's business. Right? The whole point comes down to, didn't you know that I'd be in my father's house? And Joseph is going, I, I know I'm not your father, but that hurt. Right? And the reality of it is, is that you can never forget that Jesus did not come to be the son of Joseph and Mary. Jesus came to do his father's will. And his father's will is that he grow up, that he live a sinless life, and that he suffer and die on a cross. And that incident in Luke actually reminds us that the coming of the Christ child is the will of our heavenly father. And so he's actually saying at that moment, he's saying all this Old Testament stuff you've been reading about the coming Messiah, that's why I'm here. That's who I am. And if you read the Gospel of Luke, what Luke helps us see is that the whole movement is fulfillment of Old Testament promises. This is the Father's will. It's not, and and this is the important thing. God did not send Jesus as a reaction to our sin. And I know I, I get in trouble for saying this, but read the scriptures. Jesus is not God going, oh no, they messed up, now what do I do? That's not the sending of Jesus. This was planned from before the creation of the world. This is God's will to save you. Jesus is God in the flesh. I want you to hear this. Jesus is God in the flesh for you in order to save you. From before the creation of the world, this was God's will to save you. And that's what the incident of the temple is telling us. I have come to do that, as the Word teaches us, as the Old Testament texts teach. The servant of the Lord will come to save his people. And Jesus is saying, that's my Father, that's me. Okay? Does that make sense? Great. Okay, you said that's the first time he takes the human form. What about way back when yeah. Abraham and Good. Yeah, so so this so the incarnation is the first time Jesus takes on flesh and dwells in it, and he won't take it off again. Jesus is still incarnate. Okay? Now, we do have appearances of Jesus before this in the Old Testament. But those are temporary manifestations of his flesh before his incarnation. So God shows up in a form that you can see him as a, as a prophecy or a foreshadowing of the incarnation when this will happen permanently. Right? So now he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He has a flesh and body like we have flesh, right? And again, don't forget, he still does. Jesus is still incarnate today. Is the Father incarnate? Is the Father incarnate? No. Is the Spirit incarnate? No. Is Jesus incarnate? 
Yes. So when you get to heaven, you will see him. And he will have a body. And so will you have a body glorified like his. This is not just a 30-year deal. The Son of God becomes incarnate and welcomes you into the same eternity in which his flesh now dwells. You will dwell there also with flesh. Because remember, flesh is not bad. In Christ, flesh is good. Okay? So, oh boy. We're, you know, we're just running out of time. It's not my fault. Okay, I just want to make sure we're very clear in all this is that when we talk about Jesus, meaning the Jesus, Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God in the Scriptures, He is fully man and fully God. He's not 50-50. He's not partially. He's not moving in and out. He is fully God and fully man. Okay? Good? So, there is nothing wrong with saying Jesus is God. There's also nothing wrong with saying Jesus is man. So, if you took the God part away from Jesus, what do you have? Nothing. Because He's 100% God. If you take the human part away from Jesus, what do you have? Nothing. Right? He's 100%. Now, when you get Jesus, what percentage of God do you get? All of them. them. If you don't have Jesus, what percent of God do you have? Zero. (coughs) Right? This is so important. You can't have God and not have Jesus. So nobody in this world can believe in God but reject Jesus. That's an impossibility. Do you believe that? A lot of people try to, right? And those gods that they're claiming to be God are what we would call idols or false gods. Because the, the true God, the eternal true God, is the one who is incarnate in Jesus Christ. And you can't have God without him. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? You can't worship the Father by rejecting the Son. And he who has the Son has the Father, and he who does not have the Son does not have the Father. That's in 1 John. Okay? Does that make sense? So this is really why Jesus is the point of faith, is that this is our God, the one on the cross. So number three, what is the glory of God? It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. So what is the glory of God? Yeah, not in John. Okay, good. A lot of options here. We have... The Mount of Transfiguration. 
We have his resurrected flesh. What else? The church sometimes is called glory. What else? None of these are right, by the way. These are just options. What? Okay, good. In the Gospel of John, the glory of God is specifically the death of Christ on the cross. In the Gospel of John, the glory of God is specifically his death on the cross. The words that the Gospel of John uses to describe the death of, the death of Christ on the cross is the word for glorified and exalted. Okay? Two words in Greek that John uses to describe the cross of Christ, exalted and glorified. Now, just for a second, I want to show you something. So put something in John 1, your paper or whatever, and go to Isaiah, Isaiah in the Old Testament, right? It's after Psalm, so it's on kind of that side of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Okay, you all know Isaiah 52, 13, although you think it's Isaiah 53, but it's part of that big, long song. So Isaiah 52, verse 13. This is the beginning of the great suffering servant song of Isaiah, where we learn that he was pierced for our iniquity. You know, his, by his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. All that kind of stuff. That's all Isaiah 53, right? This prophecy of Jesus. But it starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and this is what it says. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Those two words, high and lifted up, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, are the two words that John uses to describe the cross. Exalted, and glorified. So in the Greek translation of this text, Isaiah 52, verse 13, are the two words that the Gospel of John uses to describe the cross of Jesus Christ. This is important because John's Gospel reads the entire Old Testament through Isaiah. Okay? So John reads the entire Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah, meaning the vocabulary that he uses in Greek to describe Old Testament stuff is primarily taken from the book of Isaiah. And then also the books of Moses. But even the stuff in Moses, a lot of times he's reading it through the words of Isaiah, <coughs> which is very common. This was a very common way to do Old Testament text. Okay, But the two things, the two words that John used to describe the glory of God in Christ, high and lifted up or exalted and glorified, are both things that John uses to describe Jesus' death on the cross. So let's go back to the Gospel of John. Let's go to chapter 12. John chapter 12. So let's read John chapter 12, verses 23 through 27. John chapter 12, Gospel of John, 
23 through 27. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Oh, sorry, one more. 28. Um, Okay, good. So there we have, this is this place where we have both terms, exalted and glory, both explicitly defining the death of Christ on the cross. Okay? So this is Jesus' own words saying that his death on the cross will be an exaltation and will be glory. Okay? So when it says in the prologue that in him we have seen the glory of God, what John is saying is the point of Jesus coming in the flesh is to die. And why did he die? To save us. To forgive sins. To reconcile us to the Father. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be reconciled unto God. Right? Galatians 3.13 says that in the hanging of Jesus on the cross, He became a curse for us to fulfill the law of God. Okay, so not just in John's theology, but also in Paul, the death of Christ on the cross is the glory of God. This is God's glory. And I want you to just think this through for a second. The glory of God is primarily seen in his salvation of people. God's glory is primarily seen in his act to save people people. Why does the church praise God? Because he saves us. Right? Because he saves us. So, the rhythm of worship is what? Who starts? God. And what does God do? He saves us. How does He do that? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus. What do we do? We praise Him. We glorify Him. We lift Him up. Right? You can't do it the other way around. You don't start with our praise. You don't start with us. If you're going to start with us, this is how it goes. Oh, you want to be included? Well, fine. If you say you have no sins, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. Right? So if we're going to start with you, that's how we'll start. We'll start with confession. Because if God's going to act, we want His action to be this action, which is an action of forgiveness. If you take this away, 
how's God going to act? If the cross of Christ is not the reality, how does God relate to you? Fury. Fury. Wrath. And nobody can stand to that. No one can stand up to that. So when we come before God, we say, only in the cross of Jesus Christ, only in Christ can I stand before my God. And when I stand there, God forgives my sins. Always. Because the glory of God is to forgive your sins. He glories in it. He loves it. It's his favorite thing to do. Right? And again, this is in the sermon. If you, if you didn't catch it the first time, go back and hear it again. But this is one of the things that, that Pastor Wood would help us understand is that God actually smiles to forgive our sins. He loves it. This is great. Which is really good because when he forgives your sin, you also smile. And so you agree. This is good. Right? You guys don't seem overly excited about that. That's the best I can do. Your love for all of eternity. It's the best we can do. All right, we got to get through one verse, don't we? So number four, how is this related to the Old Testament? Good. So we have the vocabulary of Isaiah, and the other vocabulary that John uses is found where? I said the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Now, remember, and I go, you guys have heard this in sermons or Bible class somewhere, that the Greek verb for whatever, how does the ESA say it? Dwelt among us. The Greek word is really, has the root for tent in it. It's the verb to pitch a tent, right? Or to say it more of an Old Testament-y way, tabernacle. Okay? So this verb really reflects back to the Old Testament when God said, I will dwell in the midst of my people and then instructed them to build a tabernacle and for them to live around the tabernacle. So remember, after they go out of Egypt and and they're wandering around the desert, this is the arrangement, is God is going to dwell in the tabernacle, which is really just a big fancy word for tent, and then his people will dwell around him arranged like this. Okay, so you have three tribes here, three tribes here, three tribes here, three tribes here. The Levitical priesthood lives here and there's a gate over here that you can't go into unless Moses and Aaron let you in, right? And if you're unholy, where do you go? You got to go out. Right? And, and if you want to go in here, what do you do? Can you climb in the fence? No, you climb into the fence, you're a liar and a thief. Right? You don't want to do that. You got to go in through the narrow way. And if you're going to go in through the narrow way, what do you, what do you got to bring with you? A sacrifice. The only way for you to be in the presence of God is through sacrifice. So now in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God provides the sacrifice. And he dwells in your midst as your God and you're his people because sacrifice has been made, right? And he's not saying you got to go out. He's saying, come on in. Sacrifice has been made. You're clean. 
Live as my people. Right? Okay, so this is, this is the Old Testament allusions that John is making in this, I'm telling you, this one verse. We could just spend the rest of our lives doing this, right? Okay, but that's, that's, the, that's, part, that's just part of the Old Testament that's being brought in through this. So we also then think of the presence of God in the, in the temple or the tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant where God said, I will meet here to forgive the sins of my people. So that's another illusion in this whole tabernacle dwelling idea is that God dwelt in the tabernacle in what's called the Shekinah glory. Okay, he dwelt there in a cloud, pillar, all kinds of stuff. And, and the whole point was I dwell in the midst of my people to make them holy by forgiving them. Okay, now I'm over time, but it's not my fault. It's that missionary guy, I mean pastor guy, right? Now, um, all right, we'll do number five. We'll move on next week because we're running out of time. But, but uh, really, yeah, anyway, this is, the, this is why the Gospel of John is just so amazing. It's just this whole Gospel does this over and over. It's, it just, remember, John wrote in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name and that's what you have because of jesus you get life okay please pray for the woods pray for them as they as they continue to to prepare for their work as they learn languages and also as they as they prepare to be to uh be international pastor and family um they're they're a blessed family they would love to get to know you by email through their website whatever and and their website is I think it's the the seaside dot Asia. Okay, so go there, check it out. If you forget all that, go to lsms.org and and look up um, the Wood family. They're there too. Otherwise, call me, call Pastor Cell, or or take home your your prayer card and look them up. They seriously, they'd love to talk to you if they have an opportunity. So, please support them in any way you can. Prayers, financial, whatever. That'd be great. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father. We thank you for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We rejoice that in him we trust in you to be the God of unfailing love. Keep us in that grace and in that glory each and every day. In Jesus' name. Thank you all.